Hey everyone, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Pastor Brian, joined in the studio today by Pastors Ross and Eric. Hey guys, today we're in week number three of our series on spiritual warfare. In total, this will be five weeks. And today we're talking about sort of the middle element in the element we in the elements that we introduced a couple of weeks ago. When we talk about spiritual warfare, it's helpful to use the framework the world, the flesh, and the devil. Today we're talking about the flesh. Ross, kick us off because last week we talked about the world and the course of this world and how the world is working to pull us away from God and his ways. So maybe by the end of the sermon of the message last week or the episode last week, people were just saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up and leave. I'm gonna move up to Idaho and and go out on a ranch and just totally escape from the world and then I won't have to worry about spiritual warfare. Yeah, and that's been an impulse among Christians for for a millennia, that the monastic movement is just go and get away from the world. And that may, may or may not be possible, but I tell you what, the, the idea of the flesh, the sinful nature, as some translations put it, really reminds us that there's nowhere I can go that I can just buffer myself entirely from spiritual warfare, because wherever I go, I'm taking my own internal sinful nature with me. If I could find some way to leave that behind, which you know, one day when we're with Jesus, it will be, but for now... That's going with me wherever I go. So there's going to be spiritual warfare that comes from within myself, not just from outside of the uh, world system around me, but from within myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes my wife will say, use a saying, wherever, wherever you go, there you are. To people that are always trying to run away from their problems, sometimes they don't look, look internally and say, maybe I could be the cause, you know? And so when talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the whole spiritual warfare thing... I think uh, a lot of people are quick to blame it on the devil or the world, but they won't look internally at the flesh. Yeah, yeah and that's what we're going to do today. So, you know, we want to encourage people that you can have victory, but you can't have victory if you don't understand who the enemy is and that you have an enemy right there within you. It's the enemy within and that you can deal with this thanks to God and thanks to his word. And we're going to get into all that. Why don't we start with a definition of the flesh. Here's our definition. This will be what we'll work from for this entire episode. The flesh is a compulsive inner force within each individual, which is an opposition and rebellion against God. Now that sounds really ominous. Eric, is it, is it, come on, aren't we all just basically good people? Why don't we address that question first? Does everyone really have this compulsive inner force? Well, yes. If you if you believe in the Bible, you understand kind of the history, the origin of sin, uh, where we are as a result of it. Um, no one is good, no, not one. That's what Romans says, Romans chapter 3. And the reality behind it is, is that human beings, um, back after Adam and Eve were created, and when they made that choice in the garden to go against God, to rebel against God and follow their own flesh and follow the temptation of the devil, that is when the curse came on humanity, the sin, the fall, that's the, that's the fall, original sin. And, and so therefore, every human being since Adam and Eve have been born with this nature that is bent to rebel against God. If you don't believe in that, then you, I guess, haven't had any kids yet, because, (laughs) you know, you look at your kids, and they're like, you don't have to teach them to do certain things. You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to whine. Even as 
a, a little baby, you know, as cute as they are, as cute as a baby is, you know, deep down, they hold all the cards and they have all the control. <laughs> they're not, they're not shy to let us know when they're angry and when they're mad. And, and so the thing is, is I think people out there in the world like to think that everybody's good because people are capable of doing good. We're still For made sure. in the image of yeah. God. We're capable of doing good, but our natural bent is that just about everything that we do is tainted with sin, and it is sinful because of our fallen nature. We don't naturally seek out God and want to go His way. We want to go our own way. Ross, I have a very theological question for you along these lines. Does a fish know he's wet? <laughs> I don't know. I've never been—no uh, fish has ever addressed that issue. It's only been addressed by philosophers who aren't fish. But, you know, that, that, but that the point is, is that, you know, without God's revelation, we're not really aware, maybe, of our own sinful nature mm-hmm. and, the, and the extent of it. Um, and so, you know, connecting it back to the original fall of humanity really makes a lot of sense here. I would just say that, um, well, that's, that's probably why a lot of translations use that kind of language. They translate this word in Greek into things like sinful nature, old nature, corrupt nature, sinful self. The word itself is flesh. It's used a lot. For example, the Apostle Paul used it over 90 times. Sometimes he just means the physical part of us. But the flesh that we're talking about here isn't necessarily saying that our physical bodies are evil or their physical bodies are somehow um, more sinful than any other part of us. Um, Mostly when Paul uses it, He's talking about this force within us that pushes us away from God, that pushes us towards sin. And so when we talk about, to use some theological language here, when we talk about total depravity, Eric, you hinted at this a little bit. You know, you said it it doesn't mean that we can't ever do a good thing. It doesn't mean that we are as bad as we possibly could be. So then what does it mean? And does it apply to everyone? Well, I believe it does apply to everyone, but I think to to define that more carefully, we'd say total depravity means that every aspect of our being is affected by sin. It's affected by the sinful nature. Every uh, our 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 thinking processes, our choices, our emotions, our behavior, um, every element of our personality is tainted in some way or another by this by this problem. Yeah, and if you go back to our our key verse for the series, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it starts out, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so part of that, the idea of total depravity is that we're, we're spiritually dead. We need to be revived. We, we need to be made alive, because in this natural state in which we're in, we're like the walking dead. We're zombies. We can't necessarily do or please God in any way, shape, or form because we're dead to him. Yeah, but an astute listener would say, but even in Ephesians 2, it's, uh, Paul is talking about how it used to be for you. Mm-hmm. You were dead in your yep. sins. So somebody might, somebody maybe even in week one of this series maybe said, wait a second, are, is this really something Christians engage in? Because 
because the key verse for the whole series is talking, Paul is talking to them about how their lives used to be, but now we're Christians. Now we've been bought by the blood. We said in week one that the victory's been won. Jesus died on the cross. The victory's been won. So we, so real Christians probably shouldn't ever struggle with um, spiritual warfare, certainly not with the flesh, right? Isn't the flesh dead? Isn't that gone, the old nature? Yeah, I wish it was. Um, I wish it had been eradicated, and there's, there are some segments of Christianity that believe that it has been eradicated. But that, to me, that, that doesn't stack up with experience, but more importantly, it doesn't stack up with Scripture. For example, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it talks about how the sinful nature, it says, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. Um, and so it speaks of it as present tense. And, he's, and by the time he gets to Romans chapter 8, he's talking to believers. And you follow the, the flow of Romans. And so he's talking to believers who have struggled with the internal kind of struggle that he refers to in chapter 7, and, and educating us that, that part of that, where that struggle is coming from, is this sinful nature It's hot, that, that's set against God, that wants to drive us away from God. So it's spoken of throughout the New Testament in present tense terms for Christians. So let's be clear then that when you become a Christian, God doesn't eradicate the sinful nature, but instead, this is important I think for Christians to understand, I, I get this shouldn't be discouraging for people. I, I think it actually should be encouraging for people because some people might be saying, why, I've, I've been a Christian for so long, why do I still struggle? Why do I still struggle with the flesh? Am I really not a Christian? And we want you to hear this today. We want to give you some solutions today. We want you to know that is a normal experience yeah. for, for you to struggle, for there to be this war between what you want to do and what you don't want to do. We see it in Romans 7. We mm -hmm. see it in Galatians 5. Yeah, when you become a Christian, you don't lose your old nature, but you gain a new one. And so now all of a sudden you have two natures instead of one, and there's a constant war. It was easier when we just had one nature, because we could only we were a slave to that, we could follow that, we had no problem. Now all of a sudden we have two natures, and so if anybody ever told you becoming a Christian is easy, it's not. There's an internal battle, there's external battles, you know, spiritual warfare, what we're talking about in this series, but, you know, in Romans 7, that's what Paul deals with, is that this new nature that's added to us now is at war with my old nature. He says in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I, I do not do what I want to do, I do the very thing I hate, and then he goes on to say, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I, I do not want to do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so this is Paul as a Christian talking, as he's writing this letter to the Romans. And so Paul's talking about himself, and he's using himself as an example. I have this war inside me. And, you know, Paul, um, in other letters, you know, kind of talks about how holy he is, you know, in a sense. He'll ha he has to defend himself for um, all of the, the, the religious acts that he used to do. And so we look at Paul as a holy guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, but yet here he is explaining to us his internal battle, and we're supposed to take that and, and take some comfort from it, mm -hmm. but also learn then, okay, what, what do we do about this then? Yeah, and here's how that same author, Paul, said it to the Galatian church 
earlier, Galatians 5.17, he says, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. So there, there are those two natures. And he says, the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. He makes it clear. He says, these two forces are constantly fighting each other. That's the spiritual warfare we're talking about, is this battle between your new nature, the Holy Spirit in you, moving you to be obedient to God, and your old nature that wants to still pull you away and draw you away from God. And so he says at the end of that passage, and so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. In other words, you'll, in Christians, I want you to hear this. You have good intentions, but you're not free to carry them out. The reason is because of the spiritual warfare in your flesh. And that's what we're talking about today. Now let's talk a little bit about footholds and strongholds. So now that we have the definition, right, the, the flesh that we deal with, and it's, this is something everyone deals with, Let's talk about how the principle of footholds and strongholds work in relationship to the flesh. Remember, Ross, maybe you can help us uh, because this was from week one. So what do we mean when we say footholds and strongholds? How does this principle work? Yeah, we talked about how a foothold is um, when it's an offensive term. When when we allow Satan, he's going to try to take ground in our life. He's going to try to infiltrate our life. And just like in a warfare situation, you have a beachhead where you get your army landed on the beach, and then you try to move from there to establish a stronghold, which is a defensive position. Once you've established yourself on that beach or in that territory, then you set up um, your fortress and, and where then um, your, your opponent has to actually remove you by them taking offensive action against you. And that happens then morally and spiritually in our lives. Okay, so let's apply that principle then to the flesh. Here's how this works with the flesh. Christians can open doors to spiritual attack by dabbling in sin. So that's how the foothold starts, is you dabble in sin in the flesh. You try to feed your own flesh. You dabble in sin. might seem innocent enough at first. Maybe nobody even knows about it. But eventually it becomes a stronghold in your life and you end up living in unrepentance. Yeah, let's remember maybe the illustration we used a few weeks ago when talking about footholds, um, where, where we're saying here Christians can open a door, uh, think about opening a door to an enemy, and they slam their foot in the door, but you've opened it, for the, and you've become vulnerable in the first place. I think about, like, you know, you ever see, like, scary movies or drama or movies with attackers where the bad guy's at the door, and he covers up the, the, the little eye slit so you can't see, but you've got that little chain lock. Does anybody use those anymore, those little chain locks? I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, they're in hotels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got that little chain lock, and they're covering up the, the peephole, and, and the attacker's you know, waiting for you to open the door, and then you open the door, and then the guy shoves his foot in the door. Now you can't. Now, now he's got a position to, to uh, move on you even more, to have more influence, to have more control in your life. And and what we're saying then is, is Christians have the power to open and close doors by how they live their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Paul actually gives us a list of this. I, you know, I've never thought of it like this, but essentially in Galatians five, starting in verse nineteen. Paul is giving us a list, essentially a list of footholds. So watch out for these footholds. Let's talk about these for a minute and see if we can't kind of classify these together. He says, when, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, 
the results are very clear. So these are footholds that can turn into strongholds. Sexual, let's do these first three together. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures. What would a foothold look like in this area? I would say this category would be sexual sin. What would a foothold look like in this area? And when, does, when do you know it's become a stronghold? Yeah, I think it's it's st- the starting phases of lust, you know, looking at things on the internet, and maybe it's not even full-blown porn yet, but it's ads you're going back to. I mean, Instagram's terrible f- with this, you know, uh, s- swiping, continuously swiping until you, you find something, and um, you, you're, you're opening the door. There's a foothold there with some of the things that we allow in our lives, which it eventually could lead to full-blown porn addiction and even relationships outside of marriage. You know, you, you start dating a person, but you don't set the proper boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then what happens is you're left alone too many times. And going back to understanding our flesh, our sinful nature, it, you know, for me, one thing that I've always, or that I've tried to do in my Christian life that's kept me safe is to not trust myself, <laughs> to mm-hmm. have boundaries mm-hmm. on myself because I don't always trust myself when put in uh, precarious situations. And so that's what Christians need to do. And when we don't have those boundaries, we put ourselves in situations where we're going we're gonna to go into full-blown rebellious sin. And then from there, that's where the enemy has his very strong foothold at that time. Right, and it could be as simple as, as watching a movie that I know has sexual content, and I know it in advance, mm. uh, but I choose to watch it anyway, and it's going to you know, potentially create desire for more. Or it's even how I interact with, with women, for me as a man, uh, how I interact with women in the real world. You know, and I notice an attractive woman, does, does my gaze go back? Again, you know, and am I going to like linger and kind of soak it in? Those are ways that those are ways that a foothold could be established that uh, that opens up the prospect or the possibility for more invasion, I guess, mm-hmm. into my life. Yeah, you know, for our st- on our staff, what we've one of our policies is we don't we don't meet one on one with women. We just don't do it as pastors. We and we that that that's a a guardrail that we put into place so that we're not allowing the enemy to get his foothold into the life of a pastor kind of under the guise of, Hey, I'm trying to do God's work here. I'm helping this woman out. I'm doing God's work here, Mm -hmm. but we need to, these are examples of how we can set up some helpful guardrails in our lives to keep us from opening the door for Satan to get some of those, some of those, um, that foot in the door, when it comes to sexual immorality or sexual sin that can so easily just turn into this, this stronghold where now the person is unrepentant. And what do we mean by unrepentant? Maybe we can give some examples of this because I know as pastors we've all seen this where you could tell the, the guy or the woman, like, they're gone. They've, the enemy has won in their life, mm-hmm. and now they don't even listen. Yeah, to be unrepentant is, is basically to not want to get to the place of humility and, you know, confess and ask for forgiveness. You know, where in 1 John um, 9, it says, confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And and it's not as if, you know, like we're always in this, we're, we're, we're trying to 
always figure out every sin we've ever done and confess it, but certainly the Christian ought to have a repentant lifestyle where he's... he Basically, to me, what I would say repentance in an easy way to frame it is agreeing with God that, that I've sinned, you know, agreeing with his word that I've sinned and that I need to turn from that and go back to his way. And an unrepentant person just is unwilling to do that out of pride most of the time. And I think, I think, you know, that of that verse that says, uh, uh, pride comes before a fall, mm-hmm. you know, for, for a lot of us. And that's why you were saying that we have these boundaries. Uh, you know, I think pride would say, I'm strong enough. I can do anything. Nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna phase me. But I think humility says, yeah, my flesh is weak, and sometimes I fail, and certainly I've, I've got a lot of self-control and the fruits of the Spirit in my life, but, but there are times that I just don't need to tempt myself, and so I think it has a lot to do with pride and humility when it, when it comes to being uh, repentant or unrepentant. Well, I think what, certainly when it comes to the foothold, mm-hmm. but I know in sexual sin, at least in my experience with some of the men I've counseled with, once it becomes a stronghold, it's not really even about pride or humility and wanting to go God's way. Now they're just like, I really want to live in this. Mm, like I want to yeah. live. I remember yeah. a guy talk, talking to a guy who had been an elder and just a good friend of mine, and he was just he was he was having sex with his girlfriend, and just he just admitted. He says, "I know it. I know what you're going to say, but I don't care. I don't mm. care." That was unrepentant, and I could tell it was a stronghold now in his life, and yeah. there was really nothing I could do about it. It felt. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think that along with pride, it, there's that sense that I just want the the short-term benefits of sin. Right. I want the so-called benefits of sin in my life, and so I don't want to put those evil desires to death the way the Bible talks about. I want to keep pursuing that titillation, or I want to keep pursuing you know, the things that, uh, that greed and, and money can, can buy me, or I, whatever, whatever the issue is. Um, you know, I just want to make some room for the whole for the sinful nature to operate because I want to have my relationship with Jesus and be on the on the on the rolls of heaven, so to speak. <laughs> but I also want to have um, again these whatever short term benefits I'm getting out of live, letting the sinful nature <laughs> operate in my life. Yeah. yeah, this reminds me of of Romans chapter one. This is a scary place to be in uh, as a Christian because. Uh, you know, we're not exactly sure if, if we live in unrepentant sin, I think the Bible several places would ask us to even question our faith in the first place, you know, if we're not coming back. But in Romans chapter 1, it says in verse 24, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading thing with, with each other's bodies. And it's a scary thing to think that at some point, when people choose to rebel and they choose sin, there's a giving over of uh, by God, or even there's these places where Paul says he's had to hand over certain people, you know, to Satan. To Satan yeah. yeah, for yeah. the, you know, yeah, to, to discipline them, basically. Right. And so that's a scary thing. And that's, I think, uh, a concept called the fear of God as a yeah. Christian. Yeah. We fear him like a, a good father would discipline us. And so sometimes that, that's what it takes for a person that's gone too far. But sometimes the other thing is you, should, you might want to question your faith in the first place if, if you've gone so far and you have no desire to repent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a scare. Unrepentance is the scariest. I feel like it's the scariest thing we can see in somebody mm-hmm. who claims to be fo- a follower of Jesus. And read First John, and you'll see why. Because he said, "Look, you can, 
you'll, you're fooling yourself. You know, First John's a, one of those fearful uh, books of the Bible for me. It really talks about um, kind of knowing whether you're really in the faith. And, mm-hmm. and I think there may be some people, uh, you know, I would just warn you that if you're living in unrepentance, man, I just would say, open your Bible, get on your knees, turn to God before it's too late. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go back to our list. So, so that was the first category, the sexual sin category. The next word here, Eric, I know you're pretty passionate about this word, on his list is sorcery. What, what is he talking about there with sorcery? I don't know a lot of people who are into sorcery these days. Well, yeah, the, the, the word in, in Greek, and, and I'm sure you know the better pronunciation than I do, Ross, but pharmakeia, pharmakia, uh, is, is, is the word where we get our word pharmacy from, mm-hmm. right? And so from the studies that I've done in this, coming from, you know, being a recovering addict, I've, I've kind of found out that, that part of the reason why Paul would add this to the list was that in a pagan culture, there was a lots of different styles of worship and different lifestyles in general. There were probably a lot of different pharmakeia, things that they were using in, in different worship practices mm-hmm. to try to hear from gods or angels or demons or whatever it was. It was a, a certain practice that could almost be religious and evil. And, and even nowadays, I'm not, I wouldn't say that people use specifically for that, I, although some people do use drugs and alcohol to get out of their minds and to have an out-of-body experience, which is cer- certainly would be covered by that word, but I also think just in general, us, us, us dabbling in the use of um, chemicals and substances that are mood-changing, mind-altering mm. um, opens the door to the devil, and I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand when, when you give your mind over, over to the control of yourself over to a substance or something else, you're certainly allowing all, all kinds of evil to come in. And so w- when you give yourself over, expect to be controlled by something else. Okay, so I'm going to add a couple more then to sorcery from his list, because if you go to the bottom of the list, he finishes by talking about drunkenness and wild mm-hmm. parties. Mm-hmm. So sorcery drunkenness, wild parties, let's categorize those as mood-altering activities, right? And so Satan can get his foot in the door, and I think one of the, one of the, the, stro- the it eventually becomes a stronghold, of course, when it becomes an addiction, some kind of an addiction to a substance or to a feeling and that, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's, again, um, I think Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, which, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the, hear- the Spirit. There's like, a, there's like two different sides there. Why does he say that? Why does he say, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit? Because uh, they're, they're almost, you know, not necessarily spiritually opposite, but opposite in the sense of, of what you gain from it. If you're going to be filled with wine, you're basically leading, leading yourself into all kinds of depravity. You're, you're not sober-minded. You're giving yourself over. Uh, but when you're filled with the Spirit, um, you're, you're protected. You're in control, basically. Yeah, yeah it's, about, it's about, I think in that verse, it's about what am I going to submit to to control my life? Mm-hmm. I'm going to be controlled mm-hmm. by, by this substance, or am I going to be controlled by the Spirit of God? Mm-hmm. Okay, the next few in our, let's go back to our list. Again, we're talking about the flesh and how 
Satan wants to use a foothold in these areas to get a stronghold. So far, we've talked about some pretty intense stuff, sexual immorality, drunkenness, drugs, sorcery. Mm. But then he gets into this really normal, regular, everyday stuff that, again, most people wouldn't think of as spiritual warfare, but really it, it, it is classified as such. He talks about ambition. No, wait, sorry, let me back up. He talks about hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, and I'm going to skip a f- uh, selfish ambition, I'm going to skip a couple, and then envy. So I would, I, would, I would call all of these sort of relational, a lot of these are sort of relational sins that are, that are a lot more normal. And some people might say, why is this in the same list as sorcery and sexual morality? Well, again, I point out that this simply, this is a great illustration that the idea of the flesh is not just linked to our physical body or physical practices, because if you had immorality and drunkenness, those things are all more physically manifest in our lives, but these are all things that are sins of heart and mind and Mm -hmm. attitude, and and so, um, you know, any of these can become a foothold, right? If I, we talked about uh, in week one about, you know, how I can let anger, if I don't deal with it right away, it gives a foothold to the devil. So hostility, that can become, that can create a real wedge between relationships and it can embitter me toward people in a way that has lasting effects. And any of these could become a foothold in that way. Yeah, think about jealousy, you know, thinking about for young people, um, especially if you're a kid, you know, you're, you've got siblings and you're jealous that's actually a form of spiritual warfare. If you look at that, you're jealous or or you're envious because what happens is the enemy can get a foot. I remember this as a kid, figuring out my worth, my identity, all that stuff. And now the enemy can get a foothold in your life if you allow him to, to say, okay, I'm jealous of my brother because he does this or has this skill or this gift or mom likes him more or whatever. And pretty soon you start listening to the lies of the enemy around that and for a lot of kids, I know this is true, for a lot of kids, I think that caught, that opens the door now for the enemy to establish a stronghold, and now they're off doing their own thing, and they're chasing their own. And so much of that comes from uh, a jealousy that was just the root of it, and a, that's connected to your, your self-image and your self-worth. Yeah, and related to that, it could the, the stronghold could end up being uh, a real sense of, of self-destructive behavior, mm-hmm. like I'm worthless. You know, so the the person who is worth feels worthless could end up doing a lot of things that um, that really hurt themselves because they just don't care uh, about their value anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I I think that that part of the list specifically kind of goes back towards the the sin, the root sin of pride. It really does. You know, thinking about um, as we'll get into maybe you know the story of Satan um, next week but just that he was kicked out of heaven because of pride, maybe even jealousy, wanted to be like God. If you think of some of these words, they seem very satanic to me. If you're talking about selfish ambition, if you're talking about envy, if you're talking about jealousy, and then even, you know, dissension and division, uh, certainly he causes those. But so can we in the flesh. That's the scary thing, And, and we even deal with this. Me as a pastor, I've dealt with this in the church for a long time, um, just there's always certain people that either, either you know, not very mature Christians or struggling with the flesh. They've got they've got pride. They want to be the leader. They can't 
submit and and they grumble and complain and gossip and that's where dissension and division will happen and certainly division is not something that God wants with his people but it is a plague that Paul has been talking about for 2000 years for us to be united but but there are fleshly people that try to divide the church well yeah I was gonna save those last two for the last category I, I saved oh, dissension no that's all right <laughs> I say we've talked about We're this both Eric. passionate about this. <laughs> we are <laughs> that you know dissension and division I'm for now at least I'm gonna put those in the category of church sins mm. because not that it does just happens there it can happen anywhere but I think in the church we see Paul's talks about this a lot just mm-hmm. the dissension and division the quarreling that can happen I think he even talks about that. In, at the end of Galatians, doesn't he? I think right at the end of Galatians 5, he, he kind of surprisingly mm-hmm. ends with that, about dis- dissension and division in the church. And I, we've seen that in our own church. And I, you know, I, it was really insightful for me to realize that that's a part of spiritual warfare. The enemy would love nothing more than to cause division on a staff uh, in a church to keep you from working together to accomplish the purposes of God. Uh, on your staff through your church, and so many churches have dissension. There's dissension and division over the stupidest things, and again, you wouldn't think much of that. You'd oh, that's just people being people. No, that's sp- actually spiritual warfare, and and it would be categorized. It's not the world, because right. the world's out. It's not the world system, although maybe it's creeping into the church, but it's really just flesh. It's the, it's individuals who love Jesus, who've mm-hmm. been bought by His blood, and yet. They let something petty create division in the church. They major on the minors, and pretty soon now the enemy has his way, and so many churches have been split over really pretty worthless stuff, and I think that's the work of the enemy. Yeah, and I think it's a great point to uh, point out to our audience that the foothold and the strongholds then, they don't just operate on an individual basis, right? That my, I, could, I could create a foot, uh, allow the enemy to have a foothold in not just my own heart, but in my family, Mm. It becomes a stronghold in my family or in my in my church, you know, relationships. A foothold can be in the church, and so can the stronghold. So it's not just individualistic, but but we're part of a body and we are responsible for each other. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's. I think this is going to really surprise people as we talk as we've prepped for this and we've talked about the biblical solution to spiritual warfare in the flesh. How do you win this war? And again, so much of this battle happens in your mind, like we said in week one. So many of these sins is because the enemy has fooled you into believing that that living according to the flesh will be more valuable to you than living according to the spirit. So how do you win the war? And it's a kind of a two-part answer. Here's how you win the war with the flesh. By consciously choosing to do two things. Number one, believe the gospel. And number two, walk by the spirit. So what do we mean, Eric, when we say that the part of the solution goes right back to the gospel? What is the gospel, and how is that the solution? Well, I think a lot of people struggle to understand, with this, with this topic specifically, uh, the bad news is that in our flesh we are fallen, we are sinful, we are totally depraved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, therefore we were under the wrath of God. That's the bad news, okay? But the gospel, which means good news then, is that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift from God so that nobody can boast about it. You know, that's Ephesians, later on in Ephesians 2. Um, The gospel is just that. It's that 
Christ died to set us free, to save us from our sins, past, present, and future. If, 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 you're, if you have the Son, 1 John 5, I love it, he who has the Son has life. You know, if, if you can have assurance of faith and you can know that, that Christ is yours and, and the blood of Jesus applies to your life, to your sin, and so you don't have to have this, this constant worry and guilt. Are you doing enough? Did I mess up? Have I gone too far? Um, part of winning the battle is first and foremost preaching the gospel to yourself, understanding the free gift of grace that he is yours, he is there, he has freed you from sin once and for all, Yet, although you will struggle with it from here on out. You always, he, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, Ross, some people might be listening to this, and they're actually not Christians. So they, some people might be listening to this for the, what you just explained there, Eric, was the first time somebody listening to this has ever heard that. So Ross, what would you say to that person who's not even a Christian yet? And they would say, how do I get what that guy, Eric, is talking about mm-hmm. right here? Yeah. Yeah. So the gospel addresses two sides of the coin here. One is... Uh, the gospel invites us to take our sin seriously. And so it's like, like so if I'm, I'm feeling like, wow, I really realize that this sin thing is at work in me and I don't like the consequences of it and, and I realize I need help. You know? And then the gospel also addresses the other side, which is that some people don't take God's grace seriously. And so if I'm taking sin seriously, then, then I feel the, the burden and the weight of that but then, then, then God has said, look, I've made provision for that. Um, I, I, Jesus went to the cross to die on the cross for, for your sins, and, and he rose from the dead so you can live a new life. And so I want to take God's grace seriously to say, look, what you need to do is simply trust in the finished work of Jesus, and, and you are forgiven of your sins, and you are given a new life. And so you know, that, that the person who's, who's listening to this will, will need to go to the place where they say, yeah, I admit my sin and my need and my spiritual poverty, but then I also recognize, oh, God has done everything I need to answer that, to address that, and embracing both of those almost paradoxical realities to, to then entrust my life and my eternity into the hands of Jesus. Yeah, and Romans 10 says that you respond to it. It says if you, if you would believe in your heart and, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And so really your, resp- your response, it's not about signing up at a church, getting involved in a program. You can just hit pause right now on, on, this, on your uh, radio or your uh, device, whatever you're listening to this podcast on, and you can turn to God in faith. You know, Romans 10, 9 and 10, just confess your need for Jesus, that you recognize what we've been talking about today, that you recognize right. that the flesh, that you're a sinner, and that Jesus died to save you and to set you free. Now, once you've done that, and back to the Christian now, mm-hmm. what you're saying, once you've done that, it's not like that's just in the past and I did that. Some of you are Christians who did that when you were six, seven, eight years old, and you've never really even thought about preaching the gospel to yourself and reminding yourself you that Jesus died for this. The victory's already won for you. You don't have to live in in bondage to the flesh. You don't have to lose this battle with addiction or sexual immorality or whatever on that list that really resonated with you. You can have victory over it because Jesus already won the battle. But it starts with consciously choosing 
to remind yourself of the gospel that you've trust that you've already uh, accepted and believed in preaching it to yourself that's the first thing right and so i look at that as i say it, we're always coming back to square one and the christian life is repeatedly coming back to square one square one is how i came to faith in the first place i acknowledged my need and i cast myself upon what only god could do for me well, and to do that over and over again every day. Yeah, and sorry, this is going to be this is going to be a long a long one because this is something that I'm pretty fired up and passionate about as well. Is that a lot of Christians think that they know the gospel, but maybe you're a Christian and you've been listening to this, and and that's not the way that you've heard it before. And you maybe you followed these camps of people that say that you've got to do this, you've got to do that. There's there's all kinds of different things and. Uh, th- uh, ways to seek out to follow God. Well, well, this is the thing. Um, Christians sometimes get, like you said, Brian, bored of the gospel, and they think there's something that they need to move on to, mm. but they, so they start to struggle in life, and they're wondering, why am I stuck in this sin? Why is there a stronghold in my life? I need to go seek out something. I need to go seek out a medication. I need to go seek out a book that you know, gives me five steps on how to have a better life. Um, I need to find some good advice. And recently I heard this quote from Vadi Bakum. It says, Christians don't need good advice. They need the good news. They need to understand the gospel because that is how they'll be changed from the inside out. Because when we understand the gospel, then it takes us to our, you know, our second thing is, is being able to walk by the Spirit so that we won't gratify the di- desires of the flesh. That's what it says in Galatians. But Paul talks about this struggle that we're going to have, um, again, in Romans chapter 7. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that's at war with my mind. And then he goes on to say, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated from sin and death. And then he says, thank God the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and then Romans 8, you got to turn the page. They didn't have the chapters and the verses back then. <laughs> you've right. you've got to keep going. It says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong in Christ Jesus. And I think for a lot of Christians that, that are struggling, they're living in guilt and shame, and, and they're wondering if they've done enough, enough or if they've fallen from God's grace and fallen out of his love. But this tells us, nope, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then it also goes on to say... Yeah, just the rest of the verse. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So there's no longer any condemnation, but at the same time there's a provision of resources for me not to live in ways that would have brought condemnation in the past, for me to, to live in a different way and to overcome that internal um, conflict that Paul was wrestling with in chapter 7. Yeah, so it's, a, it's two, two choices that you have to consciously make to believe the gospel again, right? Mm. And then number two, to walk by the Spirit. And again, it's a conscious choice. This is, always, this, is, this is something that I love to think and talk about because, you know, when Paul talks in, going back to Galatians 5, this where he talks about this colossal battle between the Spirit and the flesh, at the end of that whole thing, what he said, the solution is, he says, so therefore walk by the Spirit. And I love that he uses that language. He says, you have to walk by the Spirit. So that's a clearly a conscious choice to walk. And so you have to participate. You didn't participate with God in your salvation. 
but we do participate with God in our sanctification. We do participate with God in getting victory over footholds and strongholds that have been established by the by Satan in our lives because of our flesh. We do have something to do. We have to consciously choose. I am going to consciously walk by the Spirit in this area in my life. I'm not going to follow my flesh. I'm going to consciously walk by the Spirit. Now, that means a lot of things, by the way. Mm. And we don't really have time to get into everything that that does mean. But in week number five of this series, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, putting on the full armor of God. And we're going to go through all of the elements in that soldier's um, sort of... uh, I don't know, vestiture, I guess you would say. Everything that he puts on, because it, there's a there's meaning to each one of those things, and we're going to talk about the spiritual disciplines that are related to all that, because that's part of what it means mm-hmm. to walk by the Spirit. But you have to consciously choose it. You're not a robot. When you right. become a Christian, you, you're just not swept off your feet, and you just can't do wrong. No, that clearly that's not true. You still have a, a flesh that fights the new that new nature, your spirit in you. Yeah, that reminds me of the the law of sowing and reaping. You know, in Galatians six seven through eight it says, "Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life." So there are consequences. There are consequences from the decisions we make, the actions that we make. We can. We can choose to follow the Spirit, the spiritual disciplines, grow, grow closer to God, you know, invest in our relationship with God, and from that, we're going to reap a bountiful harvest mm-hmm. of, of, you know, the fruits of the Spirit. But if we spend our time investing in what our flesh wants and desires, we'll certainly get what that will bring us. That's corruption, mm-hmm. that's death, that's pain, that's addiction, sorrow, and, and everything else that the flesh mm-hmm. wants to do to us. Yeah, amen. All right. Well, this if you want to talk about this topic with your family, your small group, or your mentor, you can find discussion questions, an article, video, everything that you need to help with this conversation, because we know that it's not just enough to listen to a podcast for 45 minutes, but it's really about connecting with someone else in your life and inviting them into your life to help you process this and then apply it to your life. So find all those resources at pursuegod.org forward slash warfare. Again, this is lesson three out of five lessons in that series. And be sure to join us next Friday as we talk about this third element in the framework. We're going to talk next week about the devil. Join us then.